However, a uh, hard, um, a challenging sermon it demands a light-hearted introduction. So, in the a children's book, Charlie and the a Chocolate Factory, a group of children are being shown around a giant chocolate factory by an eccentric owner. All of them, except a Charlie, are either greedy or, or spoiled. And each one of them comes to a rather sticky end. One of them, in particular, is a girl by the name of Theruka Salt. She is thoroughly spoiled, and her parents give her anything that she wants whenever she demands it. And when she can't get it, she dissolves into floods of tears and tantrums and screaming. In the end, she falls down a garbage chute, while the Oompa Loompas, who are the workers in, uh, in the uh, chocolate factory, sing a little poem that reflects on her fate. Here it goes. But I think I'll speak it. Theruka Salt, the little brute, has just gone down the rubbish chute. This is the price she has to pay for going so very far astray. But no, my dears, we think you might be wondering, is this right? That every single bit of blame and all the scolding and the shame should fall upon Theruka Salt. Is she the only one at fault? For uh, although she's spoiled, and dreadfully so, a girl can't spoil herself, you know. Who spoiled her then? Uh, who indeed? Who uh, pandered to her every need? Who turned her into such a brat? Who are the culprits? Who did that? Alas, you needn't look so far to find out who these sinners are. They are, and this is very sad. Her loving parents, mum and dad. And that is why we're glad they fell into the garbage chute as well. <laughs> Discipline is important. See, it stops us from becoming self-obsessed and spoilt. It keeps us safe and protects us. It's never very pleasant, but yet it is often necessary for our own good. And where it is not carried out, the result is often a disaster for all concerned. That's true with a discipline in the home. That's true with a discipline at the office. And it's also true with church discipline as well. And yet, church discipline is rarely practiced and virtually never talked about. And I guarantee that some of you here will have never heard a sermon on this subject in your entire lives. I think there are lots of reasons for this. I think, uh, first of all, we want to take seriously what Jesus said about not judging, not being hasty or premature or harsh in our treatment of other Christians. We're all too aware of our own failings and faults, and so we are rightly reluctant and wary about the whole subject of church discipline. And then secondly, church discipline has often been abused in the past. And so we are, if you like, wary of repeating the mistakes and some of the heavy-handedness which we have seen in church history, even some of it comparatively recently. One uh, case of, of this that I um, read about recently was a 24-year-old nurse 
who was dragged in front of the elders of her church and excommunicated for worldliness, which in her case amounted to a, a television and a light blue car. Apparently, it is okay to have a car, but a worldly colour like light blue was just not on. And this is nothing new either. In the 17th century, the Puritan John Owen said, Discipline hath been metamorphosed into a hideous monster, an engine of domination and tyranny for the terrors of the souls of men and the destruction of their lives and the erection of a tyrannical empire. That's what he had to say about it. And with accounts like those, it's easy to see why some think that the whole practice should be just got rid of and wiped out altogether. Inappropriate and unworkable in today's modern world. However, what I would like to suggest tonight is that church discipline is necessary. And more than that, when it's practiced with love and care, its effects will be good and beneficial to all. Church discipline is necessary. And when it's practiced with love and care, its results will be beneficial to all. I do think that we have to be very careful about how it's done. And I'll be suggesting various safeguards as we go. However, the danger of not exercising it is much worse, as it leads to disrepute for the church and a whole generation of uh, Christian Veruca salts whose spiritual lives are in real danger of going down the tubes. At this stage too, I want to say that church discipline is not something that applies to you if you are new to church or you're still maybe thinking through the Christian faith or even if you're perhaps struggling with certain sins but are earnestly trying and working hard to put things right. As we will see, it mostly applies in cases where a known and established Christian is uh, living in obvious and public and grievous sin that is uh, being division and ruining the church. So much so that after repeated warnings, the church is forced to take action. So then, let's um, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in it, we will find four helpful principles about the exercise and practice of church discipline. So then, uh, principle number one. A church discipline must always be carried out with a profound sense of grief. We can see that in the passage in verses 1 and 2. And this brings us to look at the actual situation that Paul was dealing with here in Corinth. There was a situation developed in the church where a man was living in an ongoing sexual relationship with his father's wife. And the church was doing nothing about it. In a city like Corinth, you could indulge in just about any sexual activity at all that, that took your um, fancy, but with one important exception. And that was incest. Not only was it illegal under a, a Jewish law, but the Roman authorities took a very dim view of it as well. In actual fact, at this particular time in, in, in history, you could even be prosecuted in Corinth and expelled from the colony if a successful case of uh, incest was, was actually brought to the courts. However, an even greater problem for the Apostle Paul than the fact that this was actually going on was the fact that the church was proud of it. How could it be that Christians were 
boasting about an activity that was going on in, in their midst that even the pagans looked down on. How could they have gone so far off the rails that they'd failed to take any action at all against this person who said that he was one of them, but yet was sleeping with his father's wife? I think we need to say that it is highly unlikely that they were taking pride in the sin itself. Even in sin-sick Corinth, the church hadn't stooped quite so low as to embrace sexual activities that were actually against the law and especially not to go about bragging about them. The fact that incest was so taboo means it's unlikely that the church was proud of the sin that that was actually taking place within its ranks. And that forces us on to to some other reason for the church's pride. And I think a, a far more likely reconstruction there is, is that there was a man in the church who was enjoying a relationship with an older woman, his father's wife, maybe a rich matron in Corinthian society, and that through their relationship, the church was gaining a certain amount of prestige and preferential treatment in the culture of the day. If this is correct, then you can see how the church would have taken great pride in its social status and connections through this sexual relationship. This relationship gave them a certain amount of social kudos and access to the Corinthian aristocracy. And so they were proud about the influence and prestige that it afforded. And then furthermore, it also explains why they would have been so reluctant to have practiced church discipline. A, a, a disciplinary action of any kind might upset this rich matriarch and her Christian toy boy. The church didn't want to make waves or jeopardize its a position, and so inactivity and apathy seemed like the best option. Now, I'm not sure how convincing you actually find that reconstruction, and I would be happy to talk, talk more about it afterwards. But I do think it best fits the text and the evidence that we have, and it certainly correlates with everything else that we know about Corinth and the love that the church there had for image and status and prestige in the surrounding society. At the end of the day, though, it really doesn't matter. The point of the text is clear. There was incest going on, and far from taking remedial action, the church was turning a blind eye to it and was trying to sweep it under the carpet. They were filled with pride, Paul says, when they ought to have been filled with grief and put this man out of the church. I think this makes us consider, what is our response to sin in the church? Are we tempted to cover it up and not to take action, because we don't want to make waves. Do we prefer gossiping about it? And enjoy talking about it and discussing with our mates, rather than actually confronting it? Do we talk about it in smug, sanctimonious terms? That could never happen to me. Rather than grieving about it in our hearts and struggling with it in prayer in private. And then you see, our attitude to sin in the church is probably synonymous with our attitude to sin in our own lives. What about that? Are we concerned about that? Have we become hardened to it? When were we last stricken with grief because of it? Do we tolerate it? Do we overlook it? Do we secretly think it's quite cool and take pride in it? What's our response to sin? You see, the necessary prerequisite to any kind of church discipline at all 
is that we are heartbroken about sin and its lethal effects in our world and church. Discipline, you see, is not to be carried out with a judgmental or censorious attitude. Instead, it's to be accompanied by a profound sense of grief over sin. So that's principle number one. Principle number two. A church discipline is necessary for the spiritual health of the individual. And we can see this in the next few verses, from verse 3 to verse 5. I think it is important for us to emphasize that a church discipline is not something that is retributive in nature or uh, that's exercised as a kind of punishment, but it's actually something that is remedial and is intended to restore the offender in question to their relationship, to their uh, fellowship with God. And here in verses 3 to 5, if we um, look at them, we can see that Paul envisions the church meeting together um, where the Lord Jesus is present among his people through his Holy Spirit when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and uh, I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. He instructs them to put the offender out of the fellowship for their own good. We can see that right in, at the end of verse 5 where Paul instructs, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Now we have to do a little bit of spade work to find out exactly what this means. And in particular, that rather tricky phrase about being handed over to Satan. However, Paul hasn't left us in the dark on this one because he actually uses the same phrase elsewhere and in a very similar context. Uh, The um, verse should be coming up on the screen, but if you look at uh, 1 Timothy and chapter 1 and verse 20, you can see that he says that he has handed these two people over to Satan, so that they might be taught not to blaspheme. From from the context, he's obviously talking about church discipline. And so what we have here is a sort of uh, semi-quasi-technical term that was being used in the early church for corrective church discipline or putting someone out of the Christian fellowship. If you like, it means turning them out into the world. The church was God's sphere of influence where the people enjoyed his blessings The world, however, was Satan's sphere, governed by his principalities and powers. So handing someone over to Satan really means turning someone out, back out, into the world. If you like, it was a kind of shock tactic, so that they would be forced to face up to their behaviour with a view to them repenting and returning to God. In that way, their sinful nature would be destroyed and they would have returned to God. Their spirits would be saved on the day of the Lord. We will look far more closely later on at at what this actually means for us as a church in practice. However, for now, I just want us to note that the aim and purpose of church discipline is for the ultimate spiritual benefit of the individual. And this also means that church discipline was only ever intended to be temporary in nature. The time out of the church acts as a kind of It's suspension for someone to reconsider their actions and to think about their relationship with God. The idea is that church discipline now, in the present, prevents them from becoming set in their ways and hardened to a course of action that might lead them much further away from God later on. So then, church discipline is positive in nature. Its aim is not to 
punish people, but is to see them restored. So then, church discipline is also necessary for the spiritual health of the individual. Principle three, uh, rattling through this in no time, a, church, a discipline is necessary for the welfare of the church. We can see this in verses 6 to 8, the next little section in front of us. You see, a further reason that Paul gives for exercising church discipline is that if it is left unchecked, then sin will gradually work its way through the whole body. And the analogy that he uses, the the second half of verse 6, is that of yeast. A little yeast, he says, spreads through the whole dough. It's an image that all of his hearers could have related to. They knew that when they made bread, that this tiny amount of yeast managed to work its way through the whole loaf in the cooking process. So the application is obvious. In the same way that yeast spreads through dough, so sin can spread through a church. Therefore, church discipline is necessary to prevent the whole church becoming affected by the sin of the one individual. And then as Paul's on, on a good run, he decides to take his analogy a bit further. The mention of bread without yeast reminds him of the Jewish Passover feast when the Israelites would cleanse all their houses of the old yeast. And he says, that's exactly what the church has to do. He says, cleanse itself of all the old yeast and get rid of the obvious and the uh, grievous sins so that it may be pure. And then he takes it even, even further and says the way it becomes pure is by the sacrifice of the uh, Passover lamb. Just as the Israelites were rescued from Egypt by a slain lamb, so he says, you Christians have been rescued from your sins by the sacrifice of Jesus. Therefore, live as you really are. Jesus has made you pure. Therefore, live that out by getting rid of the old yeast, the yeast of wickedness and malice. Get rid of this man who's committing a flagrant and blatant sin that's like an, 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 an open festering sore on your fellowship. It risks contaminating the whole church in, and is at odds with the kind of holy community that Jesus wants you to be. It's one uh, analogy. Could be if you've got one rotten apple in the a barrel, then eventually all the other apples go rotten too. The rottenness spreads through the whole lot unless you actually do something about it. And the way to stop the rot is to get rid of the rotten apple and take it out and stop the rest from becoming contaminated. And it's hard to know in exactly what way Paul was thinking that the whole church might be affected through the sin of the one individual. Presumably, for instance, he wasn't thinking that everyone in the church would start committing incest. So the main danger must have been that the church's witness would have been compromised and people would have got mixed and confused messages about what it meant to live as a Christian and to really trust in Jesus. I can remember watching an interview, I think it was Louis Thoreau, on a a television with someone from one of the uh, fundamentalist uh, Bible Belt um, areas in um, America and he was interviewed on the issue of sexuality. And he said that he was a a Christian and that he knew that the church said that you were meant to be sexually pure, but nobody did it in practice, so it didn't really matter. And I've heard similar views over here. You see, when we neglect to exercise appropriate discipline, everyone gets confused about what it means to follow Christ. Sin becomes trivial and rottenness 
spreads through the whole church, diluting our witness and leading people astray. So what Paul's saying here is that in extreme cases of um, sin, church discipline is necessary for the overall health of the church. So that's principle three. Principle four, as a last resort, a discipline may involve exclusion from the church family. And that's the final section from verse 9 to 13. And in this uh, last point, I want to get slightly more down to earth and try to deal with some of the practicalities of a church discipline. So far, we've kind of um, floated around rather than grounding some of these things in what they actually mean for church life. So that's what I want to aim to do from now on. Um, first of all, the background to this verse is that some people in the church in Corinth had obviously misunderstood all of the Apostle Paul's talk about not associating with immoral people and were starting to separate themselves off from the world and not have anything to do with it. However, here, Paul says, no. I don't mean that you are not to associate with immoral people at all. He says, if I meant that, you'd have to leave the, the, the world altogether. And then, how would you be salt and light? How is Corinth going to hear the good news about Jesus unless it's you who is actually in there amongst the culture telling them? No, instead, what I mean is that you are not to associate with anyone who calls himself a Christian and yet leads an immoral life. Now, at this point, a quick caveat. I need to say that these verses have been grossly misinterpreted and misrepresented by some very exclusive, and I use the word deliberately, Christian groups, and have been used to justify all kinds of very severe and even harmful forms of church discipline. Even last week, there was a television program about one such group who forbade people to see their families just because they were deemed worldly. And all that was justified by an appeal to these verses about church discipline and not associating with the immoral brother. And then some people even take the bits about not eating together to extremes. And and unfortunately, even today, you don't have to go too far to hear stories of people who have not spoken to their families for years and whose former friends no longer speak to them, all in the name of corrective church discipline. So then, we do need to ask the question, is that what these verses are actually saying? And I have to say that I think the answer to that is no, for a variety of reasons. Firstly, the word translated associate here does not necessarily mean to have no contact with someone. Rather, it means to have no close or intimate social contact with someone in the kind of situation where you are condoning what they do. In the ancient world, one example of this would have probably been sitting down in close fellowship to eat a meal together, which is probably why Paul mentions it explicitly here. And then secondly, we can see this very clearly if we look at yet another passage dealing with church discipline. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15, this is what Paul says. If anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. And here's the important bit. Yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So then whatever it means, quite clearly, not associating with someone does not mean ignoring them or 
regarding them as an enemy, but involves warning them as a brother. We see here what we've discovered already, that a discipline is not retributive, but is intended to shame someone into into repenting and being restored. And if restoration is the aim, then surely, surely we need to keep up some kind of meaningful, loving contact, don't we? And then number three, I think the words of the Lord Jesus himself help us out here. If you go to Matthew 18, and you can read it later on, you'll see that Jesus gives his disciples some guidelines on church discipline. First of all, he says that the individual is to be approached uh, one-to-one and warned. Then, he says that witnesses are to be brought in to establish the facts. Then, and only then, the matter is to be taken to the church. And finally, right at the end of the process, as a last resort after all the warnings and everything else, he says that you are to treat him as a tax collector or sinner. What this tells us is, is, is that this kind of exclusion is only as a last resort for the most serious cases after absolutely everything else and every kind of other help has been refused and failed. The offender has refused to repent and even after repeated warnings and the facts have been established. And even then, we are not to ignore them, but treat them, it says, like a tax collector or sinner. I think we often misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Because if we are to treat them as we would a non-Christian, then that means that we are to gently and lovingly try to point them towards Jesus so that they can be forgiven. Tax collectors and sinners may not have had any formal or intimate or condoning, if you like, links with God's people. But nonetheless, surely God's people were to be still among them, gently and lovingly urging them and wooing them on and encouraging them towards the cross. So then, the command of Paul not to associate with them in this passage doesn't mean that we cut off all social links with someone under church discipline. Instead, what it means is that we will gently and lovingly work to their restoration, even if that means they may be excluded from the church in some kind of formal or official sense. So then, what does it actually mean in practice not to associate with someone in this context? I have to say, I think that most churches have got this right, in that it means a breaking off of formal ties. The end of the process normally means a suspension of church membership, and that the person is not allowed to take communion or serve in the church. I think they would be welcome at meetings of the church that are open to non-believers, and people in the church would hopefully still get alongside them and point them to Christ. However, they would probably want to be very careful that they didn't put themselves in a situation where they were condoning a sinful course of action, like some very extreme way of giving legitimacy to an illicit relationship for instance. And they would especially want to make sure that they were pulling with the church leadership on the issue rather than working against them or working at cross purposes. I need to say too that every church that I have ever been in has only done this as a last resort and after everything else has failed and with great sorrow. In fact, more often than not, the leadership of a church have gone out of their way to go the second mile and to hold off and to hold off, and to give the person every opportunity to put things right. And that's entirely as it should be, to demonstrate something of the patience and compassion and love of the Lord Jesus. One final question. Does this really work? In today's world, can't people just shrug their shoulders and walk off and go to church elsewhere? Well, yes, they can. 
except in a small church community like in Edinburgh, where the kind of leaders tend to be in quite regular contact with each other, it would be very unusual for us to readily accept someone into membership if they were still under church discipline elsewhere. The natural thing would be to get alongside the person and to encourage them in their walk with God and their relationship with him, but also try and encourage them to put things right with their home church as well. And does it work? Sometimes it does. The shock of exclusion, together with the loving concern of people in the church, really does lead to restoration and a renewed sense of fellowship. It's often a painful process, but it's a necessary part of the church's work as all of us together teach one another and spur one another on to stay sharp and keep following Jesus. Sometimes, though, it doesn't work. But church discipline is still necessary because it's something that Jesus commanded. And provided it's carried out with a sense of grief about sin, for the benefit of the individual, for the welfare of the church, and with exclusion only as a very last resort, then it's worthwhile and the necessary safeguards are in place. So then, some words of conclusion. Most of us here will never experience any form of church discipline. We're the kinds of folks who get on with things, who struggle with sin and keep going without the obvious sins or the drastic measures that Paul is talking about in these scripture verses here. So I want to encourage you with those words. However, for some of you, it may apply either now, if you're under discipline from this church or another, or in the future, for none of us knows what will happen or what sins we might fall into around the next corner. And I think by far and away the most important thing to remember is that a discipline is an expression of love. A parents discipline their children because they love them. Letting sin go unchecked and allowing someone to persist in a destructive pattern of behaviour is not love. That's hate. If Theruta Salt's parents had truly loved her, then they would have disciplined her and wouldn't have spoiled her. And by doing that, they would have saved her from the garbage chute. And so painful though it may be, sometimes the most loving thing that a church can do is not just to let someone cheat on their partner, or run havoc with false teaching through a fellowship, or be known for dodgy business practices, or bring a dishonour on the name of Christ, but is to discipline them for their own good, so that they might be restored and brought back to fellowship with God. A discipline is an act of love. And then we do need to put church discipline in the wider context of God's discipline in all of our lives. See, all of us experience God's discipline at some point. We have the promise of Scripture. God disciplines those he loves. Church discipline may be painful, and we may react against it, but it is part of God's loving work in our lives to make us more holy and more like Jesus. Listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 12. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, 
but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the churches that you put us in. Forgive us um, when we struggle to understand the truths of your word, and especially as on this subject, Lord, how they they often um, bring up great um, difficulties and uh, great pain in the complexities of human relationships where we find it very difficult and very uh, confusing to do some of the things that you tell us to. So, Lord, we ask for your grace. I ask particularly for um, those involved in leadership at this church that you would give them great patience, great compassion, and great Christ-likeness, but most of all, great love um, in, in the way that they lead the church here, especially those who are involved in difficult pastoral issues. I also want to pray, Father, for those who are on the receiving end of, of, uh, of a church a discipline, both um, willingly and unwillingly. And Lord, we ask for a genuine sorrow, that discipline would be a temporary, and a genuine repentance and the tears of joy that come from a restoration um, to a fellowship of your people. Lord, it, it, it's our long as a, as a church to be united and to be loving and to be genuinely caring and uh, spurring one another on to uh, more closely follow Jesus and to stay spiritually sharp. So Lord, we ask for your grace as we hear your word. We... Um, Pray, Lord, that we would um, live in right relationship with you and with each other and, um, and ful- fulfill the command of Jesus to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind and all our strength and to love our neighbours as ourselves. Give us grace to do that this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.